Hello, I'm Sarah R. with Self-Care with Dr. Sarah. Before we start this episode, we'd like to acknowledge that there's been a lot of press this week about serial sexual harassment in astronomy. And given the extra attention from the media, we are posting this a few days early. My co-host, Sarah B., was one of the brave women who came forward with her experience of harassment. Though the perpetrator was found guilty of multiple instances of sexual harassment spanning at least a decade, no real action has been taken by UC Berkeley other than a warning. We urge other women to report harassment, as Sarah Ballard did, if they are able, though we recognize that that might not be possible for everyone and validate all responses of victims to harassment and assault. It isn't easy. I just wanted to add a personal note of how proud I am of my friend and co-host Sarah B. and her coming forward with her story and in pursuing justice. Sarah Ballard is incredibly brave to have stepped forward publicly, and I know that her story will encourage others to likewise pursue action against their harassers. With that, we will start our podcast. Self-Care with Dr. Sarah. It's Sarah B. And I'm Sarah R. And joining us on the podcast today is Alex Gonzalez, a second-year graduate student of Earth and Planetary Science at MIT. Say hi, Alex. Hi. Nice to meet everyone. (laughs) Um, So I thought it would be a great thing to get a second-year graduate student to reflect with Sarah and I on surviving the first year of graduate school. So hopefully surviving that first year is still really fresh. In your mind. <laughs> in your mind. Um, I still can't believe that it's over. So, yes. <laughs> uh, so, um, on this episode, we were going to kind of visit the particular challenges that first-year graduate students face. Not that those challenges magically go away when you hit your second year, but I think they're extremely intense uh, in that first year, which is full of transition and often a lot of stressful parts of scientific culture that you're encountering for the very first time. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Go ahead, Sarah. I think it's I think it's worth noting that uh, undergrad is very different from grad school. So I think you know I, I maybe was under the false impression that oh yeah the first two years of grad school you're taking classes it'll be just like undergrad right oh no 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 oh no 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 <laughs> <laughs> it is way more stressful and and I feel like a lot of uh, undergrads don't appreciate that and then it can hit harder because you, you maybe expect to have maybe a more easy, at least I expected to have an easy transition into grad school because I thought the first two years would be so similar to undergrad and in reality they were quite different. You know, the, the ante was higher year round people who were all at the top of their class, you know, and you're yeah. at, you know, you're just oh, in a yes. much more stressful environment because of the nature of grad school. What do you think? I, I think very similar to the transition from high school to undergrad. I think the transition from undergrad to college or to grad is completely unexpected. Yeah. It's, you yeah. think you're going, or you think you have down pat the system and you know how to balance your class schedule and your research schedule. And then you go to grad school and it's like the slate is wiped completely clean. Like I had no idea going in yeah. um, that it was going to be so The tools that you developed to survive yeah. undergrad all of a sudden feel really inadequate in a yeah. yeah. grad level. Yeah. Um, I thought, 
mean, what hit me first, I think, um, was the deep feeling of loneliness. And I don't know, that probably maybe hit you less, Sarah. Or I don't know, you know, because you seem to have a pretty great cohort. Um, yeah. I do have a great cohort, but I mean, moving to a new city is always hard, right? Like I was coming for the first time to the East Coast, you know, and, you know, I didn't have any friends in the area, but, but I will say that when I was on my grad visits, I picked out Sarah Ballard as a (laughs) (laughs) potential friend friend. and and I was like, Ooh, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Harvard and then I'm going to become her friend and this will be my goal. And it totally worked out and we're here today. Fast forward uh, many years, and then here we are. Uh, um, how was your first year? How was the first month? The first month was probably one of the hardest months, I think, of my entire life. I learned more in that month than I probably learned my entire senior year of undergrad. I think that was it was really intense. Um, so the way my program works is we are taking classes for the first couple of years, but we're also really research intensive. So I kind of jumped straight into full-time research and taking classes. And I think that's what a lot of grad students try to do. You know, we try to go in and that's kind of the purpose of grad school. Yeah. You kind of weren't and supposed to teach. We weren't supposed to start. Yeah. And then somehow yeah. teaching and then somehow also passing that information on to other students that you don't really feel more qualified to teach than you just oh, I know. happen to have taken that material. Grad school. Grad students? Yeah. I'm terrified of TAing grad students. I, I never did it. I managed to avoid it. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, I was very, very deep imposter class while teaching other graduate students. Um, so what do you what do you remember? You remember it being super busy? Specifically, it was super busy. I felt like every day that there was no room even to breathe, let alone try to get all of the things done that I had to get done. Um, every day I was living, I actually wasn't living on campus. I lived off campus my first year of grad school and I'll probably live off campus every year. Uh, Yeah. It's so actually my boyfriend moved out with me, which was awesome. That's having that support system there already was really, really great. Um, but he actually wasn't working at the time. He was still in between jobs trying to, trying to find work. And so that put a lot of extra pressure, I think on my being in grad school, just Mm -hmm. because it's our only source of income at the time. Ooh, Which is, yeah, events. one graduate student stipend as a source of income for two people is very difficult <laughs> to balance things on. Yeah. That's what my husband so, and I did throughout grad school. And, yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's like, it's, I feel like two grad really, students living together is fine. Like, you're actually okay, yes. but like one and then paying for like rent and all groceries. Rent was 75% of my income in grad school in Boston. Yes. Every time, and you're like, if I'm not supposed to be paying more than a third yeah. of my of my income, out the window, out the window. I mean, that's not yep, even just got. I mean, yeah, that's just for bills. Just that's a basic. whole separate episode where yeah. we need to talk about how how people have families. Yeah, uh, as graduate students, I it, it does seem like unfathomably financially and emotionally difficult yeah. to me. Um, but people do it, and I think there's a lot of universities that are kind of stepping up now, but. In any case, um, I remember that first year, especially the first few months, it felt, I was just in a constant daze of like, of anxiety and stress. Mm-hmm. Um, I longed to ask whether the other students were feeling like I felt, but do you remember, Sarah, I was telling you, my class was particularly small, so it's me and three other people, and uh, uh, I, I think that first semester I was taking cosmology. There's something, and we had just had a particularly difficult 
theory-heavy lecture, and I said to one of my fellow students in this attempt to reach out and, and normalize my experience, I said, that was a really hard class. I was having trouble following parts of that. And he was like, oh, really? I understood it all. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, I'll just go jump jump off of off the cliff now because <laughs> I that was very difficult and that really only increased my loneliness. I was like, who are these people? I remember having I felt so different. I remember having the same thought about you, Sarah. You and no, you I sure did because <laughs> you were a year ahead of me. And in one of our classes, um, you were like, oh yeah, I read through the whole paper and every step that I didn't understand, I derived it for myself and I made sure I understood each step of that paper. Like, never that was an ISM and you. Yes. Totally did. You totally did. And I was like, oh my gosh, who is this girl? I can't even, I can't even, right? And so. <laughs> oh, Sarah, I'm so sorry in retrospect. Oh, no, you don't have to be sorry. I just, you know, okay. it's, it's, I think it's funny because even, you know, I know that I sometimes cause people imposter thoughts as well. And I'm like, how could I? Because I'm the imposter. Like, you are clearly smart. But then we tend to sometimes just. I don't know, not appreciate uh, that everyone else is really going through the same thing and, and having those same yeah. insecurities. So. Yeah. Did you confess any of your um, discomfort to your fellow students? Uh, my first year, I did not. I've gotten better at it, though. I do have, so there's a couple of older students in my lab group, um, and they came in, and they were very good about trying to be helpful, you know, trying to be good mentors to a younger grad student that was coming in That's at, at first year, which was really helpful. Yeah. But um, they were both at points in their research and at points in their education where it felt like I understood one of every five words that was coming out of their mouth. Twenty percent's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I learned eventually that that was actually for something to be proud of rather than something to be <laughs> to be ashamed of. But at the time, at the time, I thought that if I couldn't even understand my fellow students, how could I possibly try to learn? For my classes, or that I was trying to understand for the purposes of my, of my own research. I mean, if I don't understand what they're doing, how how could I possibly be competent enough to be doing my own original research? I mean, clearly there were things that I must have been overlooking every step of the way. Um, but that's, I mean, I think the first year of grad school is learning that, yes, there are probably steps that you're missing as you move along, but that's what your mentors are there for, that's what your advisors are there for, that's what older grad students are for, and Post you're supposed to know everything already. That was really toxic. That one was hard. Yeah. yeah. And I still have trouble. Um, I guess with practice now, I feel okay admitting when I don't know something because I have enough confidence to say to myself, if you don't understand it, it's because it could do with a little more explanation. You know, um, it would be okay if this were explained more. Probably more details would be great for other people as well. So that's something I've internalized now, or if I have this question, all the other people have it. But so my relative feelings of ignorance like, have probably lifted with time because of my experience, but also my feelings of shame about that ignorance yeah. have really changed because I remember feeling just deeply ashamed that I couldn't follow and that this other student was like, oh, I followed everything. Well, do you find that especially in your own subfield that when you don't know something, that still brings out the shame in me? Because I'm like, oh, but this is the area I'm supposed to know, you know? And and then and, <laughs> and 
and then like of course you know there's still things that like we all probably I'm hoping we all I'm hoping I'm not the only ones don't know about it and so then that can really bring out those thoughts for me but especially like you said as a first year um Alex when you feel like you don't understand even the basic conversations going around you and hear these grad students all all around you knowing seemingly everything and everyone I think has that impression of all the other people by and large the whole first year feels like a charade. It does. It feels like you're yeah. putting on like a like a mask every day of I am this super intelligent grad student that knows everything and, and never has to ask questions because I always know what I'm doing and never has to clarify because I know exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm feeling really well. And it's I'm just starting to learn how to ask questions instead of trying to figure it out for myself. Because it's it was always very yeah feeling really afraid feeling really ashamed that you didn't know the answer and and instead of trying to figure it out and and failing and struggling miserably for a very long time there's but it's a lot faster to ask I uh in the um in the brainstorm session that we were having about what to talk about with this podcast I was remembering what it feels like well it still feels this way but what grad school felt like which is that I had a lot of like raw value and raw ability, but the process of being a graduate student was like being burnished to a fine shine so that every facet was just so, but that process of friction so that now I feel like my knowledge is really comes through, you know? Um, but that process of constant friction is really painful. It was especially painful that first year because the learning curve is so steep about how to even act like a scientist. So you haven't even fully integrated your own identity and the things that you hold dear into this picture you have of science. And for me, those were really at odds for a long time, especially the first year of grad school. I was like, I identify with no one. I identify with no one. The things that I actually hold dear in my sense of humor and the things that I do to connect with others, I don't see it reflected. Don't see reflected in my peers. So how could I? How could I create? an identity that's ultimately going to unify these things. And I remember very well, though, that like a good example of where I felt the friction really strong um, for a second was when I used to use a lot of really self-deprecating language. It's mm-hmm. almost laughable to me now, but um, my advisor at the time would say, can you do such and such? And I would say, oh, I don't know. Sounds pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, sounds like maybe it's too hard for me. I can't, it's hard for me to even say that now because that's been so um, indoctrinated out of me because he looked at me and said, can you do it or not? And I was like, I can, I can, I can do it. Yeah, I can do it. And I had to learn not to do that constant narrative of self-deprecation, which was part of um, my scientific identity in undergrad because I was not sure how to own my own ambition. I didn't know how to take ownership of my confidence. I, I wasn't. I didn't yet know how to do that, so I I was very clumsy, clumsy with it, trying to hold it. Um, and that's that's a big push. Yeah, I and still feel that. So it's like, I mean, it's very good to hear yeah. that even someone that I consider to be very successful in <laughs> this field, yeah, is you know felt that at one point. That's... Uh, Sarah, what's something that you kind of had practiced out of you? Um, the first year of grad school. Was there anything that you did as a first year graduate student that you learned to kind of well, I think, stop doing? I think for me, it was the catastrophizing thoughts that I had um, of my own ineptitude and stupidity. And I still like have these 
thoughts, but there I've learned to stem the tide a little bit more. And so in first year grad school, it was overwhelming. And I really felt like I don't belong here and I will fail out of the program. I will not graduate. Everyone around me is smarter. And serious contention. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and I like yeah. was miserable as, as I think I already mentioned in another podcast and it was really strong the first six months and it was better like the second semester and then it got better in other years of grad school. But I think coming up with strategies on how to look at it a little bit more rationally and uh, some of those strategies, well, as you know, as you helped me, Sarah, with were finding resources at the university, finding a therapist, uh, finding you know, what resources, peer, peer-to-peer counseling at your university or uh, using, you know, there's often like a on-point uh, person for grad students at your university or even just older grad students and finding the support network that you can put in place uh, to encourage you and to realize that a lot of people are feeling that way and that, you know, the, the catastrophizing is really not relevant. Or, I mean, it's not relevant. It's, a, you know not necessarily an accurate reflection of reality, right? You're so, like, it was so at the front of my mind, even when I was doing an assignment with someone or, you know, talking with someone about an assignment or, you know, listening in class, I was like, oh, I don't know this, I don't know any, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fail, I'm going to have to go back to Montana, I don't know. You know, I just had, had all these, <laughs> had all these thoughts. <laughs> I end up in my parents' house too. That's like, like the end of my spiral as well. That's where the spiral is. Alone. So this is, I think, what I really had to try to learn in my first year was how to stop those negative thoughts long enough to actually do well in grad school. I don't know, Alex, you, you were there more recently. How did you find that you yes. survived the first year? Like any tips that you used? That sounds so familiar. Um, definitely my first step was getting a therapist, was going and talking to... You were a step um, ahead. You already moved. I Actually, you recommended that to me. <laughs> um, yes, back when we, were, when we very first met oh, as I was applying to grad schools yeah. at the Kepler Conference. Um, I was explaining how I was having crazy imposter thoughts at that conference in particular, um, trying, to, trying to apply for grad school and justify my own undergrad research was a very big deal for me, and I didn't. I don't feel like I succeeded at it very well, <laughs> but um, Sarah, you were really helpful in that you kind of explained to me that you know a lot of other people feel this way, and it's not uncommon for very successful people in science to feel so unsuccessful relative to their peers. Um, and so, even when they're very authentically talented, yes, even when yeah. they are very authentically talented, yes, even when none of their thoughts really hold any truth, um, when those thoughts don't mean anything really. Uh, so I went and I found um, a therapist for the crazy anxiety that I was feeling about grad school. I mean, I would go days, I think, where I wouldn't be capable even of exchanging communication with people at work. Like, I wouldn't be able to talk to the other grad students in my classes. I wouldn't be able to yeah. talk to the professors if I had questions. Like, I would just feel so isolated and alone. I think the first thing was just coming up yeah. and out of my shell enough to talk to someone about what I was feeling. So it was it someone at MIT? Um, I wound up looking through the MIT's mental health office and they referred me to someone off campus just because of timing issues, but they really made sure that even though I had, because let's face it, everyone in grad school has a busy schedule. I mean, if you're in grad school and your schedule isn't busy, 
I don't know what you're feeling. <laughs> I don't know how you, what is your secret? <laughs> but, but I know, like, for me, I feel like my whole day is planned out before I wake up. Yeah. And so trying to find the time to fix even just an hour of the day to talk to someone else was really hard at first. I didn't know to prioritize that. I didn't even know it was okay to really need that. Yeah, to, to want that. I didn't see that it reflected around me. That I mean, it seemed to be that people who were really thriving and just hitting the ground running were people who could work really long stretches of time without interacting with others. And that didn't seem to trouble them, and it didn't seem to take an emotional toll on them. And I remember thinking... This is a serious issue that I have this need, you know. Yes, there is something wrong with me wrong. that I need to talk to people throughout the day. Like, that's somehow my fault. Yeah. I lack yeah. something. Yeah. Something that feels this is like a setback. Emotional needs that will assert themselves. Yes. I am disadvantaged by my emotional needs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely not true, and it's supported by research. I think, Sarah, we've talked about this before, but, um, you know, happiness yeah. research and positive psychology shows that you need to be happy and have a strong support network first before, this, you know, you are successful. And often we have this alternative narrative running in our brains that we have to be successful grad students. We have to, you know, do our research well, do classes well, teach well, do all these things well, and then we will be happy or get the PhD, then we will be happy. And it's this constant, yeah, you're chasing happiness and it, you never get there because you're so stressed yeah. out trying to reach this goal. And then once you get it, you maybe are happy for like a day and then you just kick it down to another goal. But I think one of the major epiphanies for me was that, you know, as you mentioned, you know, for you to be successful, you have to be happy. And so uh, that involves having a support network. That involves seeing ther a therapist if you, if you need to. It involves carving out time with friends and family to uh, maintain grounded with your values uh, as a person. And so by taking time to do that, you will be more efficient and more effective in grad school. And so I think that for me is the number one thing that I've learned over the last, not just first year, but the over six years was in times of stress, don't withdraw like we want to and just stay alone in my little catastrophizing thoughts, but actually reach out for more social connection and, you know, make sure that I'm eating lunch with someone else or, you know, going to therapy or going to exercise or meditating because those things are the foundation upon which happiness and success has been built. I want to say something else kind of delicate to express. Um, but I remember thinking the same thing, like, if you feel lonely, Sarah, then why don't you spend time with others? But for me, what was available at that time was to spend time with other graduate students in our program. And I found, I, I, I found it challenging sometimes to have an interaction mm -hmm. in a style that was as nutritious yeah. as what I was looking for. So I would make myself go to a lot of happy hours and stuff, mm -hmm. and I, there's no loneliness like loneliness around others. You know, it's it's really, really challenging. And that was something I had to learn as a first year was that it was okay to need time with non-scientists. So people who, they didn't, it's not that even that they didn't value my scientific mm -hmm. identity or something, but it just wasn't a part of how they viewed me at all. They viewed me through this lens of my friendship qualities, you know, or my family qualities, um, my sense of humor, stuff like that. And I, I felt like that was nutritious 
like that was the and the, these other interactions was like feeding myself junk food and I thought why am I still hungry and my stomach hurts and all I've been doing is eating you know um so that's really that's I think that's really hard and I think that's something a lot of first year grad students don't often hear is that it's not that you're antisocial it's not that you have a hard time making friends yeah. it's that sometimes grad programs are small um, I think when you're trying to spend time with other people and if you aren't making those friendships, I think you need to realize that maybe that's not, that doesn't say anything poor about you. You know, it's not a poor reflection of yourself. It just means that you need to look outside maybe for different kinds of friendships, like yeah. friendships in other departments or friendships outside of your college or university entirely yeah. can be really helpful. Like I know my boyfriend, I got really lucky. My boyfriend is in a completely different field. He actually, he wants to go into the restaurant business. And so all of his friends know very little about science, yeah. do know science research. And so yeah. when I spend time with them, it is, it's not that I come to them as a colleague or as another scientist. It's that we all spend time as, as friends. And I think yeah. that can be really, that can be a really important um, yeah. level of relationship that a lot of grad students don't get just yeah. because. You try to make friends in our department, and you try to spend time with other scientists and learn from our colleagues, but I think it's also important to be getting experiences outside of that. Yeah. And I think also this is one one area that I did have an advantage in by living in on-campus housing my first year, is I met all, all my, a lot of my friends through grad school were in other departments because yeah. of that experience, and so that was very helpful to me personally, and a lot of those friendships have really continued throughout grad school, and that meant that I wasn't only talking to astronomers, not that I don't love you astronomers, but it was, you know, really nice to, to I don't know, talk about human evolution. Shout out astronomers. You know, other, just other topics, and so I find that that's an advantage for me be doing on-campus housing for a year, even though grad students kind of don't really want to have one more year in the dorms, so to speak. Uh, it was really helpful yeah I I had a great experience and I will say it it really cemented a lot of these friendships and helped that feeling of loneliness because you're all there in the dorms no one has any friends yet you're all first years you know you're all there and and so many people and we just had varied discussions and that really helped the friendship department as well as Sarah as you mentioned I had a really uh, great cohort coming in with my program but even so, it's still lonely, and I think in my the mistake I made in my first year is when I was having my negative, catastrophizing thoughts, I by and large just stayed in my dorm room and kind of had a little serapity party <laughs> rather than, you know, going out and and um, yeah, seeking yeah. out the, the support yeah, structures yeah, that would totally. have helped. You know, I didn't even know what I was doing, you know. Did you even know, did you get to therapy your first year? No, no. You had to tell me, Sarah, 14 or 15 times in order to see a therapist before I actually did. I feel it's like that research where you need to see a poster like 16 <laughs> times before you register it the first time. Well, it was exactly that way with uh, therapy. Sarah Bell was like, you should go see a therapist. You should go see a therapist. And I'm like, hey, uh, whatever. <laughs> I will. I know. I mean, you were on it, Alex. You, like, took her advice and yeah. you got in there, and I'm very um, proud of you. I felt so – I felt like I needed to do – any and everything I could, including like not eating or sleeping or doing anything. Like mm-hmm. if, if I could just put 110% of every effort across the board, then maybe I could maybe succeed at grad school. 
Like, if I tried so hard and got really lucky, maybe it would work out. And then I started going to therapy, and the first actual real exercise I think that my therapist did with me was trying to redefine what success meant for me. Because success used to mean um, being the best or knowing all of the answers or not needing to ask a question because I already understood everything. And yeah. I mean, that's, Im- that's impossible. Understanding everything like, right away without any help. In all fields. Yeah, that was what... In all fields, <laughs> in all yes. Fields. In all subsets of all fields, <laughs> ever tangentially relating to mine. <laughs> that was what success meant as a first-year grad. Yes, if I could master science, then I would be a successful first-year grad student. <laughs> so the first, the first exercise I think that my therapist went through with me was, you know, so what does success mean to you? Do you like that definition? Does that make you happy? Is that a healthy a definition? Yeah. And so we worked on that for, I think, six or eight months before I, I gave him a different answer, I think, than the one he got on the first try. And he, he made me sit down and really congratulate myself for that, for giving him a different answer. That's good. Because, um, because it meant I'd internalized it. You know, at that point, I had kind of internalized that success for me meant being happy with the work I was doing that day. Yeah. Um, I had to, I, I didn't know to go to therapy and I was actually really a- angry about it at the time because my partner at the time, um, I was in a long distance relationship and my partner at the time was in a social work graduate school. And I remember him saying, your distress has outstripped my ability to help. So um, he, and I was angry about that because I thought, isn't this a partner's job? I mean, I had some ideas about relationships, too, that were a hot mess. So it was a hot mess. But, but I mean, him saying that, I was like, but I thought that's what my other support structures are there for. And he was like, I think you need more than that. Yeah. And I remember being like, angry. Like, that was some condemnation of my character. And I remember he said, he gave me advice, which I give to everybody who's thinking about going to therapy, which is go the second time. Yes which is advice that he gave me um, because that's it can be very deeply distressing to, to go. You've finally gotten over the hurdle to go. And it may be the first time you're saying out loud the things that are troubling you in your heart yeah. when you can't sleep at night. You've never said them out loud before, and all of a sudden you hear yourself say them, and you're like, this is painful. This is bullshit. <laughs> I don't want to do this yeah. anymore. This is really painful. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, like this didn't help. I feel worse, you know, and so he said, go back the second time, Um, and that was really important advice. That was probably November of my first year was when I was like, I'm crying all the time for no reason, which now I'm like, oh, that's bad, Yeah, you know, (laughs) that's a sign, yeah, but I couldn't even recognize it, and remembering I think along with that, what I've learned too is not just go the second time, which is really great advice, but yeah. go a few times, and if you don't connect with your therapist, switch and so try, try a different one. Because I talk to a lot of people who are like, yeah, I went to therapy a few times, I just didn't really feel it, and so it didn't work for me, and then they're really struggling like a year later, and I'm like, that it's not that therapy didn't work, it's you maybe didn't have the right therapist for you. I, I really like a therapist who's more interactive with me, who's more skills-oriented, who's going to talk back at me, um, yeah. who's going to call me on my shit, and, you know, be a little more aggressive. I mean, that's that's the that's yeah. the type of therapist I like. Other people want someone that's more empathetic, listener, positive, 
you know, uh, regard all, you know, more, I don't know, more talk therapy. And those are both different styles. They're both valuable and they're both valuable for different people. And so what I found is seeing, I saw in the end, like three different therapists, just kind of through happenstance. Cause like, you know, my insurance ran out for out of network support. So then I needed to go back into the university and then yeah. that therapist ended up just switching locations. And so in the end, like I didn't make the decision to switch. It was kind of all thrust upon me. But when I got to the third therapist, I was like, oh, this fits. This is what a really helpful therapeutic relationship is. And this is where I need to be. And so often I find when I talk to grad students who are floundering, who've already tried therapy, they, they don't, they think it's like just already doesn't work for them and they've already tried it. And that's it. And I always encourage people to try a different therapist, even like three therapists or four therapists, because 14 or 15, 14 times, or 15 times, you tell them, yeah. do you tell them to go? Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it, is, it can be a really helpful tool. And if you're really struggling and you need that support and you know something's wrong, you know, like you're crying every day or you're upset or you're catastrophizing or you're just not handling, you know, mm. uh, your situation as well, you're not able to, you know, as you, as you said perfectly, Sarah, if, you know, the, the, your needs are outstripping, you know, those, uh, of yourself and those around you, mm -hmm. uh, I think find sticking it through and it takes time and it's frustrating, but sticking it through and finding a therapist that fits you is really important. And it, you don't have to worry about offending that therapist. You know, it's I'm they're used to it. You know, not Dude, everyone. Has that to whole first sense. year is just like such bullshit because <laughs> like basically everything you don't know any of the signs that you're approaching a crisis. So all of the changes that you have to make are like in crisis. Yeah. You're like mid crisis because you've come upon the crisis and it's happened to you by the time you're like, something is deeply wrong. <laughs> so it just sucks so much because it's just, you're basically always operating from that place of like category five, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like state of emergency constantly is exhausting. And that is the hardest place to make a change yeah. of any kind yeah. or to believe that something could ever help. Yes. Because if you're in that state of mind, it's really hard to claw your way out of that and, yeah, first year is first year is whatever. <laughs> so I feel about it. Yeah, but on the other hand, like once you get over first year, at least I found second year was so much more tolerable and different. It's good to hear. You know, good, good. I hope yeah. you find the same. <laughs> we can interview you in another year and find out. But yeah, 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 that's a good plan. I, I, I do have also. I have noticed that sometimes uh, different years hit people differently. Like there are definitely grad students who have a much harder time in the third or fourth year or fifth year than, you know, in the first year. I think first year is a very common trouble time, but it can, there's always going to, let's say there's always going to be a year. <laughs> it might not be the first year. It might not be the last year, but there will be a year <laughs> in grad school that's yeah. difficult unless you have an honestly, you know, high serotonin levels, like a certain uh, friend of ours. <laughs> a certain mutual friend of ours who's like, well, I Everything's great. I love reading the archives. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, that's like deeply troubling. That is yeah, the opposite of the reaction that I had to first year. I think my favorite story to tell now, and it's something it's something that I still do, but it's not something that I admit to as much anymore. But my favorite story from the first year is that for the first, almost the entire first year, actually, I would go through my workday, and by the end of my workday, it would be like five or six, and I would realize that I still had hours of work left to do. It would be like, oh my gosh, this is the end of the day. This is what, what most normal people call the end of a work yeah. day. And I would still have hours and hours of work ahead of me. 
And so what I would do as a brain break before those hours and hours of work was write up my letter of resignation to my advisor just saying, I'm quitting grad school. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can tell that I have seven more hours worth of work and I have to sit down to dinner or yeah. make dinner yeah. and and try to get through life. This is it. And, and this is it. And yeah. I can't do it anymore. And I'm so sorry. I'm sorry if I was a huge disappointment. I'm sorry if I was a poor investment, oh but God. I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I would write up that email and I would rewrite it every day. It's not like I would copy and paste it every day. Oh no, every day I would sit down and as a brain break, I would write out how poorly I thought I was doing and how I needed to quit. That is an escape fantasy. It and is, I love a good escape It's fantasy. an intense escape fantasy. But you, you, you so actually wrote it out, which is impressive. That's like, I, yes, I did. I, I wrote it down. I signed it, and then I minimized to the window, <laughs> did the rest of my work. And usually by the time I was done with the rest of my work, I would go, you know what? It's really late. I'll send that email in the morning. Yeah. I'll feel exactly the same way when I wake up in the morning. If I feel exactly the same way when I wake up, I'm sending it. That's it. <laughs> wow. And so every morning I would wake up and go, you know what? I jump in the shower, do my run. Okay. Do one more day. I think I can do one more day. I think I can do 24 more hours. Just 24. <laughs> just one more day, and then I'll send it. Yeah. Yeah. And so every day, I, and so I would close the window and say, never mind, not today. Yeah. And then at the end of that day, I would write it all over again. That's amazing. And the process would repeat itself. Totally like, that's really, like, also shows such a strength of character on your part to, uh, yeah. A, be able to say, I can get through one more day. And it's kind of like, you know, when you're running, and the first two minutes, you're like, oh, Man, I just want to stop. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. Like, this is a mistake. I shouldn't work out today. But uh, you know, okay, I'll just I'll just I'll just I'll just run to the end of this song that I'm listening to, and then you get to the end of the yes, song and you're exactly. like, Oh, maybe another thirty seconds. <laughs> That's what I do all the time. And and I feel like you did the same with grad school, which is a really effective That's what strategy. I did which is a really effective strategy. You're like, oh I can just do one more day and and then I'll quit tomorrow. You know, and that's yeah. one more Beyonce's song. <laughs> yes, one more Beyonce's worth of God's Yes, that's exactly what I would do. I would listen to one more Beyonce album yeah. over the course of my evening, yeah. and then say I would email tomorrow. Give it one more day. Give it one more day. I really like that's. I mean, that's an incredibly powerful story. I'm really glad you shared it. It makes me reflect on how important it is to um, be okay with small chunks of time mm-hmm. because I feel like you, especially starting in that first year, you're setting out on a path. Um, the landmarks are few and far between. So, you know, you're going to be publishing. That's like somewhere in the future. You're like a year away, <laughs> two years. I don't know. And you've just committed to like five plus years of being in a place. And you're like, I guess I have a five year plan, but, but in truth, in your heart, I was like, I don't have a plan beyond, like, one week yeah. away. Like, 24 hours is pretty good. And Sarah, you've even told me meal to yeah. meal. Think yeah. about your next meal, you know. Um, and one day at a time is, honestly, I'm like, forget this day. Tomorrow's a new day. I can do one more day. And when I'm at, like, four months ahead, I'm like, this is great. This is the best I've ever lived <laughs> I can, I'm like four months ahead of the game that I can predict what I'll be doing, like and what I want to be working on in four months or what my plan will be in the four months. That's like I've And I know that I'm, <laughs> I'm going to ever have a five-year plan. Five-year plan when you're writing out, I had to write out like, you know, as you did, Sarah, like, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. Post-work. Oh, my God. I was like, what? 
fine. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I can Let maybe do two or three oh. years. Two or three years, maybe. That was like, it stretched all of my energy. <laughs> but five years and having like just... groups and grad students and other stuff, I was like, oh no, that, no, not now. You should just put that unhappy face emoji. It was like the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if I was reading that application, yeah. I would appreciate it. Yeah, you would be like, I, and I relate. I really. Um, I think we uh, need to wrap up sooner rather than sure. later. Do you guys have anything you want to add? Um, oh. Something that's really tickling the back of their brain about something you would have wanted to do? Yeah, I actually have a question for Alex. Um, so yeah. something you said in the last in your last uh, comment really stuck out to me, and it's that you you got to the end of the workday. It was six p.m. and you still had so much to do and I feel we all feel that in science at any level it doesn't go away as a postdoc or or it's just life of a researcher right because it's infinite work there's always something more that you could do and should be doing yes and so you can't ever attain it and so I was wondering as you know how did you deal with that because I felt like that was also a very hard part of first year grad school is to not to give yourself permission to stop after one day and that was that was really hard and it's something I'm definitely still learning absolutely something I'm still learning but um the biggest thing for me was luckily I have so I have a significant other it's really easy to say I have something exciting to go home to I'm ready to be done with my day and go home to mm-hmm. that Um, so if you can create a space, even if you work at home, like I love working from home. I love not having to come into the office, but if you can create a space in your own mind, um, where you say, you know, when I am done with my day, when I'm done with my day, not if I'm done with my day, when I'm done with my day, um, I am excited to snuggle into my bed. I am excited to walk my dog. I am excited to light this fancy candle. Light this fancy candle. Yes. I am excited to, I like incense sticks. I'm like, when I get home, I light an incense stick, do some yoga, unwind for my day. And so that's, that's what I did. I created a space in my own mind to go home and say, I'm excited to be done with my day because now I'm excited to be done with my work because now I get to do this other thing that excites me. And that was really, that was really necessary. It's still really hard because I still very often get home and think, oh my gosh, but I still have like four plots to make and I still need to read so many pages for this next class and there are so many P-sets due soon. I don't know when to start them or do that. Well, you graduate one plot at a time is, is my is my motto. But <laughs> thank you so much, Alex. That was really helpful. I think that's... Um, that's that a beautiful. beautiful yeah, we're not going to be no, able to talk no, that. It's done. Podcast out. Thank you. Um, that helps with some imposter syndrome thoughts for sure. Um, let's wrap it up here. Okay, so this has been Self Care with Dr. Sarah. I'm Sarah B. And I'm Sarah R. And thank you so much, Alex. Alex Gonzalez at MIT yeah. for for being uh, on our on our show. And we will um, hopefully maybe interview time. you in a in a year or two and see how things are going. Hopefully, hopefully yeah. I'll feel more successful. <laughs> <laughs> things are shaping up. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye.